We're glad that you're with us right here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. We have a very special guest on the show today. The iconic Scoop Jackson is with me, and we're together, and we've been talking for well over 20 years about basketball and sports and life and culture. But this is something special. We want you to be able to go online while we have this conversation about a new book that's out, Ice, Why I Was Born to Score, the story of George Gervin, uh, Scoop Jackson, a big part of that book, and he is with us here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Scoop, uh, my pleasure, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Now, anytime, man. You know, it's always a pleasure when you, you and I get in the same space, man. So I'm always, you know, let's, you know, everybody else calls you Jay Hood, Hoodie, all this, that, and the other, man. You're hoodness, man. You, you're on some great <laughs> stuff. You know, you already know, you know, I've been giving you flowers for years. So I'm going to keep like dumping flowers on you, but you're not in the grave. So we're good. Yes. Yeah. It's good to be on this side, by the way. Right. Exactly. Side of, of, exactly. Of the grave. Exactly. That's for sure. This is through Triumph Books, and we want you to check it out about George Gervin, why I was uh, uh, born to score. So tell me about George Gervin. Like, to me, when I think of that name, when you were synonymous with this book, and the first thing I thought was great basketball personality, but still underrated. How yes. true do you think that statement is in 2023? I think it's, well, here's the thing. From my standpoint, I think it's true. Um, because of the way in which we discuss players in this era um, as being rings the end-all, be-all to where the conversation starts. It's almost like we walk backwards. So how many rings somebody has, whether a person has rings, this, that, the other. We're having a conversation about individual greatness based on what a team actually does when it comes to basketball in these conversations. And because of that, I think somebody like George Gervin, who hasn't won any rings, you know, gets reduced to a, a fourth or fifth tier of the conversation when he really, in my mind, should be much higher when we're talking about what somebody's ability to, to do when that person played the game of basketball, what contributions that person made to the game of basketball, you know, and what that person's total career looked like while they played the game of basketball. So, um, yeah, I, I do think he's underrated. I think he's underappreciated to a certain degree. But George feels differently. George feels that history is always, always, always going to level itself to what it's supposed to be. And he says this in a book. He uses a phrase that you can't keep piling dirt on it because eventually that dirt is going to blow away. So basically, as much as you try to excuse my language, shit on my career <laughs> and dismiss it and unappreciate it, don't worry. Time will blow all of that dirt that you put on it away and people will see what they need to see. And he brings up the point of how, in his mind, he's gotten the credence that he deserves through kids playing 2K now and how 2K is based mm -hmm. on numbers and efficiency. And him being one of the most efficient scorers that the game has ever seen has elevated belly has elevated him back into the conversation where he feels he deserves it. He doesn't feel the same lack of appreciation about his career that I do in this moment. You know, you and I in our conversations have not talked about the research that you do when you are able to take a project like this, like this Thank book you. about George Gervin. What what did what did uh, you do to prepare for this book? I read probably 15, 16 biographies, memoirs, and autobiographies um, just to get prepared for this book because I had never done 
as a writer, this is this was a new lane for me doing somebody's book. And the last thing you want to do is mess up somebody else's story. You know, I remember Spike Lee talking about when he got the rights to finally do Malcolm X's story. He's like, okay, this one I can't fuck up. You know, because this is not just a movie. This is about they're handing me the reins to tell somebody this great their life story. I cannot mess this up. So I kind of went through, not that it's the same thing that George is like, you know, on some Malcolm X level. He's special, but that's yes. another level of specialness. You know, but I just knew I couldn't, I could not mess this up. So let me do what I need to do to get this right. So the initial research, when I agreed to, you know, as, as George asked, could you, you know, help tell my journey with me? And helping tell this journey, I wanted to make sure I was, on point with rereading and sometimes reading some new stuff that I hadn't read and look at it in a different light and not read it from a place of enjoyment, from a place of, you know, learning about somebody else's life, but look at it from one reader to another reader, look at it from one writer to another writer to see what works, what doesn't work, how, what, what, what type of pacing, I can have and why that pacing work in some books with some stories and doesn't work in other books with other stories, word choices, how to break um, a good memoir up so that it reads not necessarily chronological and people who already know that person's career can predict where it's going to be next so that it doesn't read like a Wikipedia page or an encyclopedia page, you know, where it's not anything that can be found something else. You know, all that stuff went into the reading so I can know what I have to work with. So, you know, you know, reading Julius Irving's book over again, reading Howard Bryant's story, you know, biography that he just did on, on, on uh, Ricky Henderson, you know, reading mm -hmm. J.R., you know, uh, Mo Ringer's both books on um, Phil Knight, but specifically on Andre Agassi, which is probably one of the most amazing, you know, biographies, you know, memoirs you're ever going to read. You know how he just his his ability to craft stories and pay attention to andre's insane recall on his life you know um reading mike tyson's autobiography reading kevin garnett's which he wrote with david ritz who's probably one of the greatest autobiographies we have when it comes to black musical culture you know um just you know just going through all of the, reading hirschfield Reading Steve Martin's book, which was amazing. Like, what, what is the name of Born Standing Up? Steve Martin's autobiography, his memoir, is insane. It's insane, but it's totally different than anything else I'm reading. So it wasn't just sports stuff. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to get a feel for everything. Hell, reading Malcolm X over again for probably the 40th time, you know? But as, as Buck said in The Wire, looking at it with soft eyes now. You know, yeah. all of that went to the initial research process of even starting to write this book and go on this journey with George Gerber so I could get myself right. You know, I had to be right in my mind to be able to do this. And then the research afterwards, as you get information about his story, about his life, and going back and telling and finding ways that you can tell what he's already told you, give it more depth, make it more comprehensive you know, uh, give it another dimension so that the story becomes fuller without getting boring. And keep it in mind that I'm talking to a man who's retelling a life of 70 years. So his recall is not going to be the same as Andre Agassi, who did his book at like 46. 
You know what I'm saying? He's lived more life. So yeah. there's things and there's things that he's going to tell that he's going to forget. So I go back and get those stories from other people and then bring it back to him so he can fill in the gaps. Yeah, well, I talked to this person and they said this. Yeah, well, that's right. But this is what else happened after this. You know, so all of that type of research. So yeah, all, all of that went into doing this, man. Yeah, the book's entitled Ice, Why I Was Born to Score. It's right here on the uh, the right-hand corner. as available right now. The story of George Gervin, Scoop Jackson, writing that book. And he talks about it here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. You know, so we use the word cool a lot, um, whether it's with a K or C. We use the word cool. I went back into all the magazines and all the stuff that you've written. I've never seen you have, like, a definitive list of cool. And I think that when I think of George Gervin, it's, to me... Scoop, it's, it's not just what he did on the basketball floor, but also it transcends what he did on the basketball floor because he became an icon for so many people, um, you know, from a commercial standpoint, salespersons, a pitch man. So where is he amongst the cool athletes that you've been around? Well, I mean, he, he personifies what it is to be cool in the body of a black man. And I say that to say we, we've always been given images of cool. And a lot of those images are caricatures of cool. Antonio Vargas, Max Julian, Richard Roundtree. You know, we've been sold on what that type of cool is, but that's a caricature of cool. You know, the guy, um, that, was on the, the guy that was on the back of the Jet magazine, whoever was on the, back of the back of the Jet magazine with the with the Newports or exactly. selling liquor. It, that was cool to exactly. me when I was exactly. growing up. Exactly. Yeah. But but look at the, at the cast that we came up with, and I'm a little bit older than you, but the cast that came up when they were basically living those caricatures of being cool, the hustlers, you know, the pimps, the you know street dudes doing their thing. They were cool. I the coolest dude I ever met in my life, ever met in met my life, even cooler than George Gervin was a guy that I went to went to high school with. Uh, Darren Triplett, mm -hmm. so cool. When you called his name, he never turned his neck. He turned his whole body around. <laughs> <laughs> coolest motherfucker ever. Dude, I'm like this dude. Right. I'm like Trip is the coolest dude I've ever. And in high school, he's like a, he's like three years older than me. I'm a, I think I'm a freshman. He's a senior. I'm a sophomore. I forgot. But I'm like this is the coolest and live that life. Voice was cool, demeanor's cool, girls loved him. He was that dude. But George was different because George wasn't a caricature. You know what I'm saying? He walked in every phase of his life that we got to see in the public eye as that embodiment of coolness of black men. Walt Frazier had that, but there was a certain... Walt didn't talk cool the way George did. He didn't fit the slim, cool, you know, facet that George did. Walt would do, you know, furs and minks and Rolls Royces. You know, that was an extravagant cool. George's cool was more approachable. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, he mm -hmm. did his furs every now and then, but they were chinchillas. They were minks. You know, captains <laughs> spent money on minks back in the day. You know, he wasn't yeah. driving around in the Rolls Royce. He had a Cadillac with a Rolls Royce front. We could all get with that because we could, you know, we could afford that. You know what I'm saying? He was wearing gators, you know, and 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 he was from Detroit. So this Detroit is a different type of cool. 
you know, then Walt Frazier, no disrespect, Walt Frazier, country dude. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. He's from Atlanta. He's from Georgia. Mm-hmm. He came here to East, you know, he went to East, he had like, yeah, yeah, Illinois dude. He ain't a Chicago dude. He didn't really see the dude. He a down south cool. George Gervin is Detroit cool. That's different. You know what I'm saying? Julius Irving was a New York yes. cool. You know, a different type of cool. George never had to go to Afro. You know, he had a little hair, but it's, everything he did was the embodiment of cool. And from your point that you made about the commercialization of cool, none of them commercialized cool the way George did. And George never did it purposefully. That was just his life. You know what I'm saying? That was just his. He just lived every interview he did, the way he talked, the way he carried himself. Julius Irving was so cool that you never thought that he was just happy. He was just cool. Walt Frazier was cool to the point that he personified cool in a way that there was a sense of seriousness to it. George was so cool, and Michael Cooper said it. He smiled when he played basketball. And that's how cool can you get when you score 40 on people and you're smiling doing it? You know what I'm saying? And you're not sweating score 40. And then when they take you off the court, everything you do is about cool. You know, every interview you do is cool. You know, and then you team up with Nike and of all the posters, signature posters that they're doing, the Truck Robinsons, the Paul Westvalls, the John McEnroe's, you know, they're doing all of these posters, DJ and Gus in Seattle, you know, they're doing Dr. Duncan Stein and, you know, they're doing Norm Nixon on a bolt of lightning. They're doing all this stuff. When they do George Gervin, that ice, man, as I said, white boys had Farrah Foster on their wall. We had George Gervin on our wall. That's as simple as it was. So as a black young man coming up in society every day, and I don't know too many brothers who did not have that post on their wall. We, uh, we woke yeah. up every day and saw what black cool was like every day. Every day we saw that. So George resonated with a level of coolness I don't think any athlete could ever match. You know, it's funny that we, we talk about this, Scoop, because I've done my like maybe 10, 12 radio shows with Reggie Theus on NBA radio. And I tell him that I'm a certain generation that you were on my wall next to Jesus and MLK. Right. And because Reggie Theus before Mike, it was about him. Everybody wanted that dream of, you know, a blonde and a brunette walking down Rush Street in a fur mink coat for just an average basketball team. But that's I mean, him and Walter is really what we had for me growing up in the, in the eighties. Right. And I, and he replied to me, he goes, well, I had Farrah Foster on my wall, you know, that, that Farrah Foster on my wall. And I said, you don't even understand how big you were in the city before Mike came here because yes. you, because you were that guy, you had the perfect hair and you look like that, you, you know, you, you look like you just rolled out of a magazine and you just always had this look and everybody that was poor and you were black or or any, yeah yeah and, and, then, right, exactly. yeah and and then he hit me and he was like you know what i didn't even realize and the reason why i i set up that set up to ask you this question is does george understand his place not just in basketball but just as a sports figure and i and in the way that he was able to go through his life i mean this book is one thing but does he realize you know, how much he meant to so many people. He doesn't, he didn't realize, he's kind of realized it over the course of the back end of his career, you know, and, and people walking up to him and, and, you know, telling him stories about what he meant to them. But I don't think, and we talked about this during the book, and I think he mentions it somewhere in the back of the book, 
that he didn't really realize it until I presented it to him. You know what I'm saying? I, in the course of doing the book, I you know told him like, look, you don't understand. And I started telling people that have not that I've spoken to before I even did this book, you know, and paying attention to what they said George Gerber meant to them that he hadn't had the privy of hearing. You know, when we have these conversations that of, of great basketball players when he's not in the room, you know, mm -hmm. of talking to Chris Paul and Chris Paul, but you don't understand my father, how my father felt about George Gerber, you know, and Chris Paul would tell George Gerber when he said, hey, man, you don't know how my father loved you, but they don't go into detail because that's, that's, that's still that's player thing. You know what I'm saying? But players will let their guard down with you because there's no protection. We just, we just talking, we just talking hoops, you know, and relying those stories to him, relying stories to people at Nike who work with him, talking to, you know, people who he did commercials with. Hell, talking to Kevin Durant, you know, about what he means to them. And, you know, there's only so much certain men are going to tell other men, you know, but there's a wall that we especially, don't have. Especially black, especially black men. Especially right, black exactly. Men. Especially, but black men that you want to look at you a certain way. You know what I'm saying? Now, we believe in giving flowers to each other, but there's still, you know, there's still as an athlete, there's ways you want other athletes to basically look at you. You know, and, and it's hard. Here's what I'm trying to get to, Jonathan, is that it's hard for someone to give respect when you're kissing their ass. And athletes want other athletes, especially former athletes, to respect them as, you know, the same way. So the same way they look at them to a certain degree. So they're not going to give that same open-armedness because it could – there's a fine line between giving somebody love and kissing their ass. And when you're trying to get respect for someone, like I said, it's hard to get respect for someone if they feel that, you know, you're kissing their ass. So they, they don't share the same way. You and I, they don't care about us. You know what I'm saying? They're like, you're the one kissing my ass. You know what I'm saying? We don't kiss. We can have these conversations. And they share with us the way they feel about things that they would never share with that individual. And doing this book, I was able to share with George over the course of me doing this for 30 years or whatever. Man, dude, this is how this dude feel about it. This is how everybody I talked to from Detroit, and that's where it really broke down, to be honest with you. All these years that I've been doing this, man, I get into conversations uh, with Detroit guys about which city is better, who had the best between Detroit and Chicago. Jonathan, you know this. You know this is an ongoing conversation. Yep. And when we get in this tip for tat, up until probably 20, what, 2012, maybe 20, yeah, 2010, 2012, Detroit would always win that argument because we could go tit for tat, tit for tat, tit for tat, player for player. You got Magic, we got Isaiah. You know what I'm saying? We go down to the, we go down to the low level. You got Curtis Jones, we got Billy Harris. You know, we go down street level and do this. We can go anywhere you want to. Right. You know, we can go. Let's go. You got Chris Webber, we got Mark Aguirre. Brother, we can go any way we want to. We can go for this. Right. They always threw out George Gervin, man. And that would end the argument. We never, <laughs> ever, ever had that one player like, nah, we got nobody that can fuck with ice. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I've had these conversations with people like us, but I've had many of these conversations with ball players from Detroit. Every one of the ball players from Detroit, I've had this conversation. We've argued back and forth about this. You know what I'm saying? Everybody. The only person I've not had this conversation with from Detroit is Antoine Jobert. Judge and I have not had this conversation. 
But down the line, we've always had it, and they always throw George because they know. They know how special this dude is. So George Gervin knows nothing about these conversations. But when you tell him about it, like I've had these conversations with Spencer Haywood. I've had these conversations with Jalen Rose and Chris Webber. I've had these conversations with Derek Coleman. I've had these conversations with Steve Smith. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I've had these conversations with legendary Detroit cats, and you're the one that they throw out. It's like, no, y'all ain't got this. <laughs> he doesn't know this. So he doesn't know until like we really got together, had these conversations, how he resonates and what he really means to people that mean something to him. You know, and after the fact that he even says this in the book that he didn't realize not only how he resonated, but how important it was that he hold down that cool factor and what that really meant beyond just basketball, you know? He's like, I never tried to be cool. I just tried to be me. But what that, how other people perceive that, that's what it is. He never knew how other people perceived his cool and what that meant to people, especially young black men. He never really knew until we got together to do this book. Scoop for, uh, for a long time, and I think it's still this way somewhat, under Jerry Reinsdorf, you know, when the team was underachieving, they'd bring in attractions. On the White Sox side of things, one of my favorite players, Ken Griffey Jr., was here with the White Sox toward the end, or Kevin Euclid, or players like that would just be here just to, for an attraction. On the Bulls side, they brought in George Gervin. I wonder, was there any conversation about George's travels? Because he was here, we got that coolness, that glimpse while he's here in Chicago, just for a cup of coffee. But I wonder his travel, San Antonio, Chicago, how much was that part of the book? We do, well, we talk about that, but we talk about it in the context of why he feels he never should have come to Chicago, even though I feel differently because I'm looking at the entire basketball scope of his career. He's looking at his career specifically, you know, and I think it's important and it, it gives to his, it anchors his significance in that he's the only player in basketball history, history to not only play with Jordan and Julius Irving, but he started his career playing with Julius Irving and ended his career playing with Michael Jordan. He's the only person that can wow. say that. So, you know, in looking at basketball history, I think that anchors him. And he didn't look at it that way because he looked at it in the moment that he had to live with and why he actually got to Chicago and how he feels he never should have been here. And we go into depth about that in total, total, total detail in the book. And, um, you know, how that actually played a role of the, being the end of his career and how difficult it was for him when he got to that finish line. So we talked about that moment in those contexts, strictly from that, because, you know, it was a contract, it, was not, it wasn't a contract dispute. They had a new coach in San Antonio and he tried to convince George that he should come off the bench because he was older and he wanted to play a different style of basketball. Mm -hmm. And he goes to the point like, look, People forget the year before I came to the Bulls, I was still an all-star. You know what I'm saying? I'm 34 years old. I'm still playing the all-star games at 34 years old. I'm still getting it done. So we get a new coach and he's telling me, you know, I want you to go to business. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, you know, this is, you're just coming to this franchise. I built this franchise, you know? So they're head buddy. And so he's like, I ain't got to deal with this. And he goes to ownership like, I want out. 
you know, and he's like, my ego's in the way because of the way this is going down and what I've built and all the set and the other. And I'm not liking this coach and I'm not liking this situation. I want it out. And he's like, they tried to give me, they tried to get, he said, look, man, dude, they tried, the ownership group tried to beg him not to leave San Antonio because they know what he meant. But he's like, I got my own way. You know, ice got in the way of George Gervin is how he always puts it. You know, and mm. he demanded trade to get to Chicago and he know he's, he regrets that just because he's still with the organization. You know, he's like, I, cause only they begged me not to do it. And I shouldn't have treated the organization like that. But once he got here, that the, the downside for the way he looks at it, once he got here, he said, watching Michael Jordan play early on, just watching, you know, watching Michael that second year after that rookie year, watching him, just going to practice. He's like, my career is done. He's like, I'm still an all-star player in my mind. You know, technically I am, because I'm coming the next season, I'll be an all-star. He's like, there's no way. He knew it. He said, that's a hard thing for, a, you know, when you're a top athlete to look at like, no, nah, that's it. <laughs> you know? I'm, he literally said, he watched Michael Jordan. He's like, no, that's that. This is a different, you know, it's almost like the word we call people aliens. He's like, oh, I've seen it. This is it. I'm good. I'm done. So as much as we saw, like you said, him here to get a cup of coffee, you know what I'm saying? He's like, all right. Yeah, I'm only here to do this. I yeah, I, I get this dude is like the greatest. I've, he knew it then, so it was a hard thing for him to go through. And that time in his life became the bad period of his life. So he looks at it. He, he doesn't. He doesn't look at that Chicago thing with all of the fondness that you would think that goes with it because it was him leaving San Antonio, him seeing the end of his career, and what wound up being the finish line which we, we know from athletes, professional athletes, when you reach a certain, certain level of greatness, that's the hardest thing they have to go through. You know what I'm saying? It's hard for them to end because their whole lives have gotten to, them, to this point. You, you hit on something that I think we need to bring out more. And again, we're talking about the book Ice, Why I Was Born to Score, uh, the story of George Gervin, of course, Scoop Jackson, a writer uh, uh, and researcher for this book. At any point in your conversation with George, did you ever felt like you were talking to Ice? Or is ice buried? Ice is, too, is you, what you what you just laid out is two different people. Yeah, that's what yeah. you just did in that answer. Because ice got in the way of his pride, but George is someone it seems like that you've sat down and written the book with. Is that true? Yes, and that here, full disclosure, that's part of the reason there was a fight between us and the publishing company, specifically George, and the public publishing company with the title of the book. He did not want the book to be called Ice. Didn't because that's this is the story of his life, not just his basketball career. You know? And he's like, this basketball is a small, well, it's a central part to who I am, but that's not my entire life. And this book is my entire life story. And I don't want to be defined, and I'm never gonna be fine. I'm not ever been defined by that. You know what I'm saying? And once you get into the story, you realize Ice is the one that became my biggest problem. You know, Ice is the one that I was trying to live up to when I had my drug habit. Ice is the one that I was trying to be that person and that, you know, caricature of being that person that was, you know, everybody loved and was cool and this, that, and the other when I'm going through my own shit. You know, I'm always trying to be Ice and I was trying to be on and Ice is the last person that I'm trying to, or I need to be. You know what I'm saying? 
I need to get back to George. And that's half the fight of his story. So ICE is not that person that we see. It's, it's, it's not an alter ego, but it's the person that was created by who he was through playing basketball, but not who he was through being a human being. So yes, there are two different people. And his fight for just naming that the cover was always a fight because he's like, I don't want this to continue to define who I am. And he always wanted to, he said, if I ever did a book, I was going to call it that because the way I look at my life is in everything that I've achieved, I score. I, I barely had a high school education. You know what I'm saying? But I got through mm-hmm. life without having that. And I'm able to, now, now, they, now they pay me to give speeches. I scored in that. I scored with my wife. I've been married to her for 50 something years. You know what I'm saying? I, you know, I scored going through the drug situation and got over that when I wasn't myself. I scored in that. I scored raising my kids. I scored in that. I scored with the San Antonio Spurs. I left them for one year, but been with them my entire, you know, I've been with the same organization basically for 50 some years. I scored in that. I scored in being with Nike. You know, I went with Nike. I was, I was, I was feeling, I was feeling like first signature athlete that he signed at this company. I was here when he was giving out shoes in the car. I'm still with Nike. I scored in that. You know what I'm saying? I scored in my friendships. My same friends, the same friends I went to high school. We see, I got my same crew. I scored in that. You know, he's looking at everything in life and how he scored. And of course, he's looking at how he scored in basketball, but that becomes a metaphor to his life. And in all of these walk through lives, all the things I just mentioned, everything I just mentioned to you, and why he looks at how he scores, that's George, not Ice. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. That is George, not Ice. So there were times in the book when we had to relive certain things that happened on the basketball court where ice did come out. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I like to call it the beautiful arrogance of ice because he has a beautiful arrogance because he knows, he knows exactly how great he was and his contributions to this game. And that's why he goes to the front. Y'all can't put dirt on that. No, they know, you know, he goes through Nike, through Nike headquarters and there's no statue of him there. Of all the athletes Nike's had, and him being the first signature one, and all these meant to them, you know, they don't have a statue of him. They got Bill named after Mia Hamm and Jerry Rice. You know what I'm saying? They don't even have a statue of him. They got statues all across. You're walking up and down this, like the Hollywood Walk of Fame of athletes. And they don't even have a statue there. And he's like, it doesn't bother him. He's like, because I know. <laughs> and, and that's when ice will come out. You get what I'm saying? I know. Yeah. I know, I know what Ice did. <laughs> and, he'll, and he'll use it in that terms. He would go in the fourth person. No, I know what Ice did. You can't throw that dirt on Ice. The wind will blow that dirt. We know what Ice did. I, I don't need, you know, what did Fife say? I don't need a statue to tell you how nice I am. It's the exact same thing that he walks through life with. I don't need that. I know what Ice did. I know who Ice is. I know what Ice did on that court. You know, I know. So that's mm-hmm. when Ice comes out. You know, and he has to come out because he's he's like I said, it's a beautiful arrogance. There, there, there is humbleness there, but there's not a sense of insecurity when it comes to basketball. And that's when ice, like, yeah, nah, you know, it's almost like, you know, you're talking to ice right now. <laughs> and I'm gonna tell you right now. You know, I'm, I'm gonna tell you right now. And and the, and I ended on this. The most beautiful story he gave me. In, in the entire book of all the hours we spent talking, man, was him being ice and talking about 
how he would in games, like he 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 think he has maybe three technicals his whole career, right? Because he was so cool, because he's ice on the court. You know what I'm saying? And he doesn't let anything bother him. Right. But he said the only thing I because I think it was it was maybe Hugh Evans that asked George Gervin to induct him into the Hall of Fame. And I'm like, that says a lot about a basketball player when a referee asked to, you know, for a player to induct him because you all got that, y'all ain't y'all don't have those type of relationships. He said, no. Nah. He said I had a beautiful relationship with referees because all I do during the game is I never talk shit to any of the players. I want to talk to the referees. I'd be like, oh, ref, get him off me. Pow. <laughs> Go to the whole thing. Ref, get him off me. Pow. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and wow. I'm listening to him tell these stories. I'm like, that's ice. You guys, That's that beautiful arrogance. And when he's telling the story, in the back of my mind, I'm reminded of what Michael Cooper said about he always smiled. He was so cool. He smiled when he played. So imagine this dude dropping 40, you know, winning scoring titles. He won four of them, you know, talking shit while smiling, but not even talking to the players. Talk to the ref. He's so cool doing it. And him retelling the stories, you're like, dude, that's, that's, it's easily some of the most arrogant shit you're ever going to hear, but it's so beautiful hearing <laughs> the story from him. You know what I'm saying? And when he, you know, get him off me, rest. ref, you know, get it, get him off me. And and one, ref, make the call. It's about to make the call. You know, just, you're like, that's, that's ice. That's when ice comes out in that type of situation. And it came out throughout the course of telling this book. I mean, doing this book. It came out every now and then. So I'm like, oh, I'm talking to ice right now. <laughs> Ice, why I was born to score and available right now wherever you get your books. Scoop, I'm glad we spent some time man, talking about this. This story is interesting to me. As we just broke it down, I think we've told people different ways or different reasons to be able to check this out because I want to know about George, but I'm going to know a lot about Ice as well. We saw him from afar, you know, the once a week that he'd possibly be on uh, national TV for the game of the week, but at least we'll be able to really delve into who he is. And I'm looking forward to turning those, those pages. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. There, there are three games we highlight in here. And I, I go through say, well, I just talk about games. And I think that's three or four games. If you really want to know about his basketball career, you read that section about games because we go into detail about certain games that were basic statement moments in his career. And then to me, once you get through with the games, Go to the part about how he's contributed to society and how much more he's done off the basketball court than what he's done on. You know, um, and that's where that beautiful arrogance really shows you what a beautiful person that he really is. And that, you know, he has the largest charter school system in the state of Texas. And all these athletes now getting schools and opening schools, David Robinson, Jalen Rose, all these academies, Deion Sanders, all these academies that have been popping up. He was the first one to do it. So not only has he set the standard in certain things that go through basketball and through sport, he, from an educational standpoint, there's no other athlete in the history of any sport who has done what he's done educationally and set that foundation. And those are the stories where you're like, damn, you know, the depth and the layers of who this guy is, a human being, are, are, are fascinating to me. And, and and he shares it all in the book. It's just, it's, I'm not going to say it's an amazing read because I wrote it. It's just an amazing story. You know what I'm saying? It's an amazing life story. And you learn more about life than you do about his life. So, The iconic Scoop Jackson with us here on Under the Hood. Thank you, sir. Appreciate your time. Man, much love. Always, always. Let's catch up. We, uh, I think I owe you what? Dinner, drinks, 
a, a, a lawnmower service. Well, I'll owe you a bunch of stuff, right? <laughs> Eight or nine, but who's counting? Just me. Yeah. I'm the one counting. <laughs> me. All right. Let me, while you're not counting, let me know when I get the double digits. Then we good. <laughs> All right. Thank you, sir. All right, man. Much love, baby. Appreciate it.